This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and I pray that you would speak to us through it by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. St. Paul writes, my brothers and sisters whom I love, stand firm in the Lord. How should we stand firm as Christians in the face of President Putin's war against Ukraine? Tish Harrison Warren, writing in Christianity Today last week, suggested we turn to the imprecatory Psalms. Those are the psalms that call upon the Lord to turn the wicked actions of our enemies against themselves. I have thought the same thing. In the face of naked aggression, the targeting and killing of civilians, the sheer recklessness of this war, with ripples spreading throughout the world and the risk of escalation, we want it to stop. We want Putin to stop. We want justice we can be honest in our prayers. We can and should pour out our hearts to God. And yet in doing so, we must also remember that vengeance is not ours. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I think that's the point of those imprecatory psalms. We're asking God to do what only he can do, and we're saying what we'd like it to look like. Of course, for us, it's pretty safe to feel our anger about a war that's nearly 5,000 miles away in Ukraine. And I'm hardly going to be arrested for speaking about it. But it wasn't safe for Father uh, Loan Burdin, the Russian priest at Resurrection Church in Kostroma, 215 miles northwest of Moscow, who last Sunday was preaching about it and was arrested for doing so. According to Newsweek magazine, he told parishioners about, and remember, this is a Russian priest in Russia, and he told his parishioners about Russian troops in Ukraine shelling cities and killing their brothers and sisters in Christ. Speaking truth to power is a noble and righteous thing to do. Speaking against oppressors can get you in serious trouble, and it can cost you your freedom or, of course, even your life. But our citizenship, first and foremost, and St. Paul tells us this, is in heaven. And our only Savior and our only Lord is Jesus. So we must stand firm in the Lord. In our Gospel reading this morning, we see Jesus and how he responded when he was warned concerning his own personal safety. And the warning comes from a little bit of an unlikely source. It was some Pharisees who came to Jesus to warn him that Herod wanted to kill him. We're used to reading about the Pharisees as kind of the bad guys, and they do often come in for some pretty fierce criticism from Jesus, but they were not all bad. Think of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. 
He wasn't willing to rush to condemn Jesus and his teaching, but suggested that people give it time to see whether this new, new movement was from God. Well, here, St. Luke doesn't say who the Pharisees were that came to warn Jesus or what their motives might have been. But the message was sobering. Get out of here, Jesus. Your life's in danger. And Herod, King Herod, was a nasty piece of work. This Herod was the son of Herod the Great, the one who infamously ordered the slaughter of the innocents at the time of Jesus' birth. The Herod who's now a threat to Jesus, is the one who had had Jesus' cousin John beheaded after making a drunken promise at a lavish party and in part in response to John being brave enough to speak truth to power when he spoke out against Herod's philanderings. Well, the warning was real. Jesus was in danger. Last Sunday, on the first Sunday of Lent, we began with that account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And I think it's worth remembering that Jesus was tempted not only three times in the desert, but over the course of 40 days. And our passage last Sunday ended with these words, when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Today's encounter was surely one such opportune time for Satan. Jesus is resolutely on his way to Jerusalem. He knows what lies ahead of him. I wonder how many times along the way must he have been tempted to quit. In my office, I have this little plaque that uh, I was given, and it, it's a quote from Winston Churchill. Never, never, never quit. Quit. But the call before us today is not a call to dogged determination in the face of war or other things that may come against us. Rather, it's a call to stand firm in the Lord. For Jesus, in the face of being tempted to flee, he did not waver. He stood firm. And he says to these Pharisees that come to warn him, go and tell that fox, I'll do what I have to do. It takes a brave man to call the reigning king a fox, especially ones as brutal as King Herod. And of course, we know how Jesus' journey to Jerusalem ended. Jesus was bold. He was also compassionate. As this passage continues, we see his compassion, his longing, his love. When he thinks of Jerusalem and all that that holy city represents, there is a cry from his heart, from his breaking heart. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And note that contrast between Herod the fox and Jesus likening himself to the mother hen. A few chapters on, St. Luke tells us that when Jesus reached Jerusalem, he looks out from a hilltop 
What does he do? Do you remember? He cries. He weeps. He weeps over that city. And Jesus wept because of the destruction that its rejection of God's message and messenger that was to come. For God's people, Jerusalem was much more than merely a geographic location or just a city. It was the heart of the whole religious experience and understanding of the people of God. It was the symbol of their unique relationship with God. And it was a privileged relationship. Jesus had called them, not because they were intrinsically special, but because he loved them. And here in Jerusalem was the temple in which the religion was celebrated and kept alive with all of its rich heritage. To this holy place, the faithful made pilgrimages to renew their bonds to one another and to God. If any place on earth should have been open and receptive to receive God's messengers, it was Jerusalem. And yet the very opposite was true. God's messengers were repeatedly unwelcome and even violently rejected. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Is there anything more painful than offering your love to someone only to have that love spurned and despised? I think of parents who plead with their children, who are choosing a path that will surely lead to great harm, only to be rejected or even hated for it. I think of a woman who so wanted her husband to love her, to cherish her, to turn from his coldness and distance, to hold her, respond to her, and yet each time she reached out for him, the more he moved away in total rejection. I think of painful times of rejection in my own life. What about you? When have you experienced rejection or abandonment? or that coldness and distance. Jerusalem, God's holy city, had rejected so many of God's messengers in the past, and now they would reject the greatest messenger of all, the greatest love of all, Jesus, the Son of God. I wonder today, does your heart break for the people of Ukraine? And frankly, for the Russian soldiers, some of whom are conscripts, caught up in the politics of that fox, Putin, and the fog and mire of war and killing. But lest we get too remote in our armchair angst, what about our city? Pittsburgh looks pretty great this morning, pristine in the snow. We have fabulous hospitals and universities and museums and art galleries. We have sports teams and impressive stadiums. We have hiking trails and beautiful rivers. And under the bridges across those rivers, we have people who are cold and hungry. The homeless struggle to stay warm. And behind closed doors in poorer neighborhoods and affluent suburbs alike, there is today so much fear and anger 
turmoil, betrayal, neglect, violence of all kinds, drug-induced death, senseless murders. Take a moment to consider your neighborhood, your schools, your families, your loved ones. And as you do so, perhaps you may begin to feel something of what Jesus felt as he considered the city of Jerusalem. Indeed, how can we see the hurt and heartache in people's lives, whether in Ukraine or whether next door, and not weep? How can we listen to our neighbors, colleagues, and friends as they confide in us something of their own brokenness and not cry? When a nation or when individuals persist in rejecting God, the end is inevitable. Jesus said, see, your house is left to you. And the NIV translation adds, your house is left to you desolate. Very likely this was a reference to what happened to Jerusalem, which we know was utterly destroyed in AD 70. Jesus came and showed us in his life, in his teachings, and in his death and resurrection, the only way to peace, the only way to salvation. He is himself the way and the truth and the life. He is the one who brings light into darkness, forgiveness into brokenness. The only way broken lives can truly be restored is by the one who wept over Jerusalem, by the one who went to Jerusalem to die on a cross for you and for me. And yet, he is still being rejected. And when he is, the results are always the same. Those who reject Christ will ultimately face destruction. That's what St. Paul is talking about in our epistle reading this morning. As he thinks of those who reject Jesus, those whom he calls enemies of the cross, he, like Jesus, weeps. Verse 18, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly and, and their glory is in their shame. Paul doesn't give us a list of who he has in mind. He doesn't call them thieves or murderers. Maybe if he did, we might be tempted to stand aloof from the warning as if it didn't apply to us. The warning is not against particular sins only. Rather, it is against the underlying sin of selfishness. The sin that says we know best we don't need God. In one Christian, selfish temptation may be toward sexual sin. In another, toward gossip. In another, toward pride. All selfish. These people, these enemies of the cross, not only allow their God to be their selfish desires and fleeting pleasures, but they go further than that. They glory in their shame. They try and justify their behavior. 
you, you may have heard me say this before, but the easiest way to deal with a besetting sin is to, well, tell yourself that it's not a sin. The easiest way to get rid of temptation is to just give in to it and convince yourself that what's wrong is actually right. People do it all the time. But that's not dealing with sin. That's not taking care of temptation. That's just giving in to it. Like those who seek to justify their adultery or sex outside marriage or lying or cheating. All sorts of selfishness. Let us not live as enemies of the cross. Rather, let us stand firm in the Lord. Tragically, in many places, the church itself has become like Jerusalem. The church, like Jerusalem, should be the one place, the one people, among uh, whom we're most likely to hear God's words, where we'll find people who are doing what Jesus calls us to do. But is it? Are we? Could it be that Jesus weeps for us? Jesus looks at each of us. He, he sees into our hearts and he knows what's on our minds. And so I wonder, what does he see in you this morning? Or what is it that is absent in me that causes him to weep? What has he so wanted to give to you or to me that we have rejected? How has he wanted to change us, but we would have none of it? What word from him has fallen on deaf ears in you? What parts of your life have you withheld from his mercy and goodness? These are some of the questions that I'm grappling with, and I hope you are this Lent. In Lent, we can journey with Jesus toward Jerusalem. And today, we may stand with him and weep over Ukraine, over Pittsburgh, maybe even over ourselves. If today you are mourning and weeping over your own selfishness and rejection of God's ways in your life, well, that's actually a good place to be. It's a very good place to start. Jesus said, blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. It's a much better place to be in than not caring. It's a much better place than being content to glory in your shame. And we can do more than merely lament over our sinfulness or that of others. For in this passage from Philippians, there's also a great message of hope. Paul reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven and that we should eagerly await the return of Christ. It doesn't mean we give up on living now. Of course not. He doesn't draw an arbitrary life between past, present, and future. A faithful life in the present takes account of the lessons and blessings of the past and of the demands and prospects of the future. In verse 21 we read, He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. 
So if I can just unpack that verse a little. It's comforting to know that our humiliating bodies are going to be transformed. As we get older, our strength gradually fails. Our mental faculties wane. Our eyesight weakens. And many people sadly experience humiliating and debilitating illnesses. We know this. But our bodies are also a source of humiliation, not merely physically, but in that also we constantly need to battle against temptation of every kind, to control our tongues, to control our appetites. And that's why it's so absurd to make a god out of our appetites. The tragedy is that if we make them our god, our destiny logically must be destruction. We all die. This is the analogy Paul's drawing with the body. If, however, we seek God's glory, then we have this promise that Jesus will transform these bodies, which are subject to decay and sin, to be like his glorious body, which will never age or decay and will not be subject to sinful desires. And what Paul, I think, is teaching us very clearly this morning is that everyone is on one of two paths, which have two very different and separate destinations. One is heading for heaven, the resurrection of the dead, the transformation of our bodies to be like his glorious body. The other is heading for destruction. There are two powers at work, the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit and the power of our bodily appetites. There are two possible lifestyles, those willing to share in his sufferings and those who chase after a lifestyle of ease and comfort. There are two possible gods, our Lord Jesus Christ, or as Paul says in verse 19, our bellies. There are two possible attitudes toward Jesus, friendship and love and service to Christ, or as enemies of the cross. Ultimately, there are only two ambitions, his glory with Jesus-centered ambition or our own glory with self-centered ambition. Where will you take your stand? We live in a world where material things and pleasures are so often more highly esteemed than spiritual things. We live in a nation where people worship their appetites rather than Jesus. Let us be in no doubt that for all those whose minds are set on earthly things, their end is destruction. But as Paul reminds us, our citizenship, first, foremost, above all else, is in heaven. Let us therefore eagerly await the coming again of Christ. Let us live our lives like lights on a hilltop so that those who are on the road to destruction may see the light of Christ in us, that they may be drawn into his kingdom. Let your weeping turn into action, that you may help others to come and experience the transforming love of God in Christ. And finally, as St. Paul charges us, brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord. Amen.